Good morning. This week brought more almost unimaginable horror to Ukraine. More brutal bombing of cities with seemingly little or no thought to civilian lives. Terror and death visited upon ordinary people just trying to live their lives. On Wednesday, the bombing of a maternity and children's hospital in Mariupol brought even more suffering to an already shell-shocked city. And as you can imagine, the voices you'll hear for the next few minutes are telling stories that are distressing and upsetting. On Morning Ireland, Keen McCormick spoke to Mariupol's deputy mayor, Sergei Orlov. This bomb destroys children's hospital and makes damage to other buildings. Uh, before they destroyed hospital number nine, it's COVID hospital where we rescue the lives of our citizens from COVID with 600 beds. And also they destroy the blood collection station in, Mar- in Mariupol. So uh, it, today it's awful crime. Uh, I cannot imagine how can they do this. It's civil people who were killed uh, by shelling by bombing artillery and most of them we found just on the street and it's not possible even at the moment to bury them in like private graves so yesterday we were pushed to make like mass grave and bury them 47 person in one grave mass grave it's terrible situation we cannot even identify all of them only some of them were identified on Thursday's drive time, Sarah spoke to gynaecologist Dr. Kirill Vensovsky. He works in a Kiev perinatal centre and he talked about his concerns for women and babies under his care. So, so you've been in a position where you've had to deliver a baby in the basement, is that right? Yes, yes. And how how is that? I, I know, as you say, you've tried to set up the basement as, as well as possible, but from a hygiene perspective, um, from the safety of the patient's perspective, how, how are those conditions? Of course, the sanitary situation uh, there is uh, not like in the, in the maternity ward we used to work. But uh, when we hear when we hear sirens, we have to go there, and everybody in the hospital. We have here pregnant women. We have patients after childbirth, uh, patients after surgery, after C-section. Uh, we transfer everybody and we transfer them all to the shelter if necessary. We also take their premature babies from the intensive care unit. Doctors have to run to the shelter with premature baby uh, in their in their hands and manually ventilate as they go. It should not be like this, but it's really horrible, and this is how we work now. And are all patients getting through that okay? Obviously, premature babies in particular are so vulnerable. Uh, it, you know, it's sad to, to talk about it, but we, during the last several in the last two weeks, last several days, we lost uh, several babies. Uh, but it's about equipment. It, it's hard to keep them going while ventilating manually. Uh, for today, uh, for, for, for May 10th, uh, Russians killed 71 kids in Ukraine. Every day they kill Ukrainian children, newborns, young children, teenagers. And nothing is sacred to them. They shoot at shelters, at hospital. So we also lost two kids. 
And if bombing of hospitals might seem beyond any thinking, it is a proven Russian tactic. On Wednesday, Sarah spoke to Samuel Romani, Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies. Russia has form on this, doesn't it, when it comes to attacking hospitals? Well, Russia has a long history of attacking hospitals and healthcare facilities, especially in Syria. And the analogy that automatically comes to my mind is that Mariupol is looking like an Aleppo inside Europe. And we've already seen over the past 48 hours a market uptick in Russian attacks on healthcare facilities inside Ukraine. There were more healthcare attacks in, on Sunday than there were in the previous uh, nine days of the war. And now hospitals in Ukraine are short of oxygen and vital supplies. So this is the Putin playbook, is it, that we're seeing playing out? Well, it's the Putin playbook when a quick offensive cannot be resolved. They resort on much, to much more aggressive tactics towards civilian targets. So we're seeing the bombing of communications infrastructure. We're seeing the bombing of schools. We're seeing the bombing of hospitals. We're basically seeing the city of Kiev and Kharkiv and Mariupol basically being shelled and bombed into submission. From Wednesday's drive time. And the bombing of that maternity hospital in Mariupol was described by Russian officials as fake news. So just how is this war in Ukraine being portrayed in the Russian media? Here is a report from Eleanor Burnhill from yesterday's Morning Ireland. The remnants of Russian free media uh, have been either blocked or they were forced to shut down due to the new law, according to which everyone that uh, says that this war is a war might be prosecuted. Olga Irasova is editor-in-chief of the website Riddle. Rather than being responsible for a mounting civilian death toll, she says Russian state-controlled media is falsely portraying its military as the liberators of Ukraine. Uh, the main narrative that Russian uh, state TV media are now pushing is that the West provoked Russia, is that the West actually implemented the so-called Nazi regime in Kyiv, and this regime has been engaged in uh, genocide of uh, Russian-speaking people in eastern Ukraine for eight years. People in Russia, they are very sensitive towards uh, the narrative of uh, Nazism because of the Second World War, because in almost every Russian family there are some relatives that were killed during the Second World War. And unfortunately, most of the TV viewers, they buy these narratives. And while over 13,000 Russian people have been jailed for protesting against the invasion, for now, at least, Putin is in control. However, as sanctions begin to squeeze, what is the likelihood that Putin's own circle of wealthy oligarchs might turn against him? On Monday, Claire put this to Bill Browder, former investor in Russia, whose exposure of state corruption there led to him being declared a threat to national security. These oligarchs, people wonder now, will they be the people who will bring Putin down? What do you think? I think it's unrealistic because um, Putin is... He is constantly looking for um, betrayal. He's constantly looking for, for disloyalty. 
there's no way that these people can do it by themselves. They would have to do it together. And the moment they start talking about it, somebody will turn them in and he'll kill them. And they understand that. And they're just so scared of him right now. Yeah, I, I just, I, I'm just wondering as you're talking, I wonder what, how he feels about Visa, MasterCard, American Express, even Netflix removing their services from Russia. Well, I, I think it's just a total shock. It's just a total shock. He, he, he always thought that everybody was so greedy that, that, that their financial interests would overcome um, their moral interests or their national security interests or whatever. And it's not happening anymore. It's just, I can't even imagine what it's like, what it'd be like to live in Russia for these, particularly for the oligarchs, but even for the middle class people Mm -hmm. who are used to to consuming Western goods and watching Western television and having a sort of, you know, regular life to all of a sudden be in, in living in North Korea, the equivalent of North Korea. So sanctions may well indeed be the long game, but where does that leave Ukraine? Because again, across the airwaves all week long, more stories from cities under siege. With food and water becoming scarce, yes, the Ukrainian resolve remained strong. But living under such dire circumstances was beginning to take its toll. On Wednesday, day 14 of the war, Audrey on Morning Ireland spoke to Ukrainian MP Ina Sovson, who's near Kiev. And this final question gave just some insight into the fracturing of families and support systems for the people in Ukraine. What about your family, Ina, and you yourself? Are you are you you're staying? Are you? Um, I'm in Kiev region. Uh, I have been staying with some friends in the city the first ten days of war, but then those friends decided to leave, so I had to to relocate, and I'm staying with some other friends in the Kiev region right now. I do feel relatively safe, well, given the circumstances. I do miss uh, my family because my son was uh, relocated to the Western Ukraine in the very first hours of war. Uh, My boyfriend rejoined uh, the army. My parents left Western Ukraine. Then my dad came back and he was uh, with the territorial defense in in Kiev region, uh, in in the area where heavy fightings were taking place. But now uh, he's uh, doing mainly the evacuation job, uh, so so that is the, a bit better right now. Uh, I I do feel secure in terms of food. Uh, we do have supplies. Uh, well, not everything, and um, lots of shops are empty, but we get enough to survive. But yeah, of course, uh, that wouldn't last too long if if we do not push the Russians further from the city and their supply chains are not restored. And countries in Europe have opened their borders to over two and a half million people fleeing this war. With Ireland preparing to greet at least 100,000 refugees and those who are able are offering rooms or shelter. And while military aid to the Ukraine has been forthcoming, their calls for a no-fly zone continue to fall on deaf ears. On the News at One, economist Jeffrey Sachs believed offering membership of NATO to Ukraine in the first place was at best ill-advised and at worst a clear provocation to Russia. Nevertheless, Brian put this to him. We are where we are. Um, there is now uh, lethal in humanitarian terms uh, war and invasion underway. Is the West right to provide what support it can in terms of arms and other, other support to the Ukrainians to try to resist this? Not quite and not so simply and not uh, unless we also have diplomacy on the table. Turning Ukraine into a killing fields is a disaster. The United States knows very well about arming belligerents. Uh, It does it sometimes deeply cynically 
uh, as it did in Afghanistan uh, already back in 1979. Uh, it did it in Syria. Uh, it has uh, done it uh, throughout the Middle East, the Horn of Africa. Uh, what you end up with is death and bloodshed. You do not end up with a political solution. And in this case, we're not going to end up with a military victory against Russia by putting arms in what we could end up with, which would be the gravest disaster of all, would be a military confrontation directly between the United States or NATO and Russia. Russia has 1,600 deployed nuclear warheads. We have to have some sense and some prudence in all of this. And we have to understand that uh, having the bravery of the Ukrainians fighting Russia right now and dying as their cities are destroyed is no victory, not a moral victory, not a military victory, not a political outcome. We need to think more clearly about a real outcome in which peace is reestablished and Ukrainian sovereignty is assured. Economist Jeffrey Sachs. So as the bombs fall and the seemingly inevitable happens before our eyes, what possibility for the future of Ukraine? Two views. Channel 4 Europe editor and presenter Matt Fry joined Claire on Wednesday. The question really is, and this is a crucial question for all of us, is President Putin prepared to settle for the eastern half of Ukraine, everything east of the Dnieper River, including perhaps the capital Kiev, which will involve a very long siege, or does he want the whole of the country, which then would involve taking this place? Will he want to just bomb this part of the country because Lviv is the kind of center of free, democratic, uncomfortable thought for President Putin? This is where a lot of the Maidan demonstrators came from, and there's a big memorial erected in their honor up the hill from where I'm standing. Um, this is where President Zelensky, should he live, and should he be kicked out of Kiev, will probably set up his government in exile in the the rump Ukraine, the free Ukraine that will be left. This will be the kind of West Berlin of the new Iron Curtain. So does he go for this place as well, or does he just leave it alone and consolidate his gains? The, you know, on, on that question literally hinges the future of peace in Europe. And on the same programme, broadcaster John Simpson thought a possible intervention by another major player might be likely. China, which was perfectly prepared to support the whole thing, even though there are signs that they were irritated that Putin didn't really uh, give them enough warning about it in advance. But China now faces the possibility that the, the kind of sanctions that are being used on Russia might at some stage be used on China, especially if China does what it's always refused to rule out, which is invading Taiwan. What's the next step? Well, I think there's a really good chance that if the West holds firm on these things and maybe even ratchets up its uh, sanctions, then I suspect that China will feel it's got to get involved and it's got to get involved in the sense of talking the Russians down and finding a solution to this. And while we all hope diplomacy and perhaps sanctions will work, not everyone was so optimistic. Back to defence analyst Samuel Romani with Sarah. 
And in the meantime, while, while that's going on, obviously these very tough sanctions being imposed by the West, um, or at least the West say they are very tough sanctions. Do you think they're going to have any impact on how this all plays out? Well, I think that the uh, sanctions are not necessarily going to deter further Russian aggression. I think that that's uh, pretty clear. The uh, but the, the removal from SWIFT uh, in particular has not done that. But what it will do in the long term is crater the Russian economy, the collapse of the Russian ruble, the collapse of the Russian stock market. We're looking at seven percent decline in terms of uh, net econo- the economy over the course of the uh, coming year, and that could lead to more protests on the streets. So it may not uh, sh- change Putin's course in the in the short term, but people power and mobilization might uh, change and move the needle in the longer term, especially if Russia gets mired into a war of attrition like Chechnya or historically Afghanistan. It sounds to me, Samuel, that that you're saying really that the, the only way, that there's no way out of this really. We, we just have to watch it play out. If if NATO doesn't get involved, and NATO is very clear that it, it won't, that we have to just watch this play out. Unfortunately, that seems to be the case. I just don't think that uh, diplomacy is really going to work to change Vladimir Putin's mind. We've already had uh, Rekhip Tayyip Erdogan. We've already had uh, Emmanuel Macron, the Israeli Prime Minister, Nefatli Bennett, Nurjah Modi, even friendly leaders, talk to Putin and ask him to de-escalate. And all he says is that the special operation is supposedly going well, and we don't see any move. So I'm not very optimistic about the prospects of diplomacy. And while the devastation in Ukraine is beyond words, the knock-on effect of the invasion and the war on the global economy and here in Ireland is beginning to be felt very acutely, particularly in the areas of fuel, fertiliser and food. But in another cruel, cruel week for Ukraine, we will finish with Anna from Morning Ireland. Every day we are trying to solve big and small problems in our lives uh, to find a better job or to find a better dress and all our problems seem so important for us so significant on the 24th of february my life has changed totally and i'm missing my previous life so much i could give everything i have of course, besides my nearest and dearest, to get that life back with all its problems, difficulties. Because I'm sure that it was the most wonderful life ever possible. I just want to ask you, please, value what you have, for life is the biggest treasure. Peaceful life is that treasure. We really like here in Ukraine. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Yesterday on Lyric, traffic took a bit of a turn. Busy as usual on the N2 through Kilmoon Cross. And that's it for now, Marty. That's all that for now. Just... Now that's Ellen Leonard. And it turns out she can sing. How well, we did not know. But that did not stop Marty putting her on the spot. Um, any chance of a bar? I can't believe we're doing this. I know, neither can I. Okay, well, listen, will I say in your own time, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome (laughs) Miss Ellen Leonard on the wireless. Okay, let me move slightly away from the mic so I don't... Why, are you a bit of a roarer? Blow blow your ears off. All right, I'll move back. I'll move back, Miss... I'm over here now. (laughs) Off you go. Okay. Oh, me o babino caro mi piace bello 
Don't more? Oh, that that's okay? terrific. That is fantastic. Oh, my God. I know it's very early. Oh, my oh, God, I'm wouldn't. shaking after that's that. That's absolutely gorgeous. Oh, thank oh, you. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, I think now we'll have to have a chat with I'm the old. I'm going to have to go to bed now. Uh, no. <laughs> no, you won't. We need you. You can't do it until half nine. Nobody in traffic has ever done that for me before. Absolutely beautiful. She now has to sing the traffic reports from here on out. On Wednesday, a rare good news story from Ukraine. With the help of two gardeners from Scotland, Carlo medical student Rachel Dialu had reached the border and was about to cross to safety. It's been a very long journey, but we're finally, the end's finally in sight. Yeah. So how long have you been on the road from Sumi? Uh, we've been on the road since... Um, around 7.15 on Monday. Yeah. So it's been like a three-day long trek. Mm. Which side of the border are you on? Are you on the Ukrainian side or the other side? I'm on the Ukrainian side, but we're very, very close to crossing over. Right. Is there is there a traffic jam or what's the situation? Um, we're on foot. Um, the men could only bring us so far because going through by van um, or car would be like a two to, well, a lot longer than walking. So yeah. we are on foot trying to get through and there's obviously a lot of people here but we're almost through now. Okay, so can you tell me what you can see around you? There's different like charities and organisations here helping like giving out food and like hot drinks and stuff and obviously there's just a lot of people with their luggages and other people in their cars trying to get through the border. Mm. And a lot of children I can hear in the background. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of children as well. Yeah. Oh, poor thing. Um, yeah. It's quite cold as well, so that's probably yeah, not helping yeah. the situation for so, so the So the end is in sight for you, Rachel. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling? Are you too tired to feel anything? It's kind of like, I'm kind of known to the whole experience. Like, I know that I'm, I know I'm going home tomorrow, um, most likely, but it just doesn't feel like it. Yeah. Yes, I'm just going to be on the road for a lot longer. Yeah. But I know, like, obviously I'm, I'm delighted and I can't wait to see my family and friends and finally to see you back in Ireland. And quite literally rolling out the banner, big sister Christiana. This is great news, isn't it? Stop, it's, it's the best the best news ever. Like, I can't believe it's actually happening. Yeah, there's going, there's going to be a very emotional family reunion. Um, so, so what's the plan? The plan? Um... Honestly, once we find out flight details and when she'll be here, we're legging it. We're legging it to Dublin Airport <laughs> yeah. to go meet her there, yeah. There'll have to be a banner. You'll have to make a banner. Oh, we have a banner, oh, babe. Yeah, right. yeah. It's in the works, it's in the works. <laughs> right. It just says, welcome home, Rachel, does it? Or is, is it that straightforward? Yeah, it says, yeah, welcome home, Rachel. Literally spot on, yeah. <laughs> yeah, great. I'm a, I'm a genius, I'm a genius. <laughs> yeah. I'm honestly just so, so excited to see her and so grateful for all the people that have helped bring her to where she is now. Christiana Dialu with a homeward bound Rachel with Ray. And while that family were preparing a welcome, others had a different story. On Liveline, two mothers and two sons. On Monday, Lucy phoned Joe. Well, my son is flying out on Wednesday. He's enlisted and he's been accepted into the Ukrainian Foreign Legion. Um, And Mm -hmm. as hard as it is him going, I know the reason why he's going. He wants to help. He's trained. He's military. Um, I'm proud of him. But he'll be fighting. He'll be on the front line in Kiev sometime Thursday, latest Friday. 
Now, Lucy's concern was about her son's baggage allowance for the flight to Poland. But as the conversation unfolded, the reason behind his decision to fight and Lucy's own reaction became the focus. Like these children, we're watching them, families, they're out trying to escape and they're blown up, gone to smithereens, burned to a crisp. Life means nothing to that man. He's an egotistical psychopath. But, yeah, my son's going over there. And okay. it's killing me. Has he has he siblings? Um, he has two. Yes. And did they try and persuade him not to go? No, and I won't try and persuade him either. Oh, will you not? Because oh, okay. no, I won't. Because I know people might think I'm crazy, but this is what he does, and this is who he is. I can't. I couldn't keep it on my conscience telling him not to go, okay. knowing that it's something. As he said, it said it's like a calling. He said, I have to go. He said, I can't sit here and watch this on mm. mute and watch these people die. Lucy's son's name is Reese, and on Tuesday, he phoned Liveline. He's 27 and has a background in military training and has fought with the French Foreign Legion. And he talked about the practicalities involved in taking up arms. What would you have in your pack? Um, I have in my pack, I have uh, spare dry clothing, uh, different uh, camouflage uh, clothing, uh, a few different tactical knives, utilities, uh, medical kits, um, tourniquets, I have my Kevlar helmet, my MK2 uh, Osprey tactical vest, that's a plate carrier, so when I get there, I'll have to get plates put in it. Extra magazine pouches, basically everything that a military would uh, usually provide to the soldier, I have had to bring myself. Yeah, and I presume they supply the weapons. Yes, they they supply the weapons. So uh, when you're over there, what your weapon you'll get will more than likely be some kind of uh, Kalashnikov variant. No, when I get there, I uh, sign the contract and then immediately will be forwarded on to the base. And then from there, we will be uh, and what's expanded the, out. What's the contract? 13 months service uh, to Ukraine's uh, foreign coalition. But say you decide after three weeks, I'm getting out of here. No, unfortunately not. You're 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 stuck there. If you were to leave, it, it would be a violation, and you would breach the contract. Um, okay. So basically, you'd be considered a, a deserter. And as he told Joe, he was under no illusions as to what he might be facing into, and his own reasons for deciding to fight. Have you ever shot anyone dead? Uh, well, I've I've been in I've been in environments where you know, bad things have happened. Um, and it's it's not something that anyone wants to be in. I know a lot of people mm-hmm. are probably sitting out there thinking, oh, Jesus, I could do that now. You know, I could. Mm. It's not like that. It's very easy to do. It's nearly impossible to live with, you know, because it will, it'll, it's a, things that will haunt you every day. Because in the end of the day, these people, yes, I disagree with every single thing Russia has done. Mm. Well, people have to remember, these soldiers that Russia are sending out, they have no choice but to do this. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but the majority of them have no choice but to do this. They are told what to do. If they don't, it'll be worse for their family. And they are someone's son, someone's daughter, even though they're doing the wrong things. Taking a life is wrong in any capacity. But it is necessary, unfortunately, in this environment to do so. And it's not something I'm looking forward to at all. I'm willing to sacrifice whatever years I may have left on this earth for one child or one person to continue on living a normal life. So from my point of view is I'd rather be the one that has to pull the trigger than 
a child that uh, he doesn't even know what he's doing. And then on the same programme, a different mother and a different son, Anne and Luke. My son is 23 and uh, he's heading out to Poland in the morning. He's going to, uh, he says he's going with an age uh, group with a couple of his friends and they are heading over to help with the age release. But my worry is that he will be, uh, like Reese. he will end up in one of these military groups. Well, has your son son any uh, military experience? Uh, No, no. I want my son not to go because it is a volatile time to go there. Okay. Like I've, yeah. Luke, Luke, good afternoon, Luke. Hello. How's it going, Joe? Well, say hello to your mother. Emma. How you doing? Where are you going, Luke? Um, so we we are that's that's true. We're flying out to Poland, and uh, from there we'll be uh, with. Uh, some people we know in country will be travelling uh, on the next day uh, to the Ukrainian border, and from there we'll get across. We have plenty of first, like you know, first aid kits, tourniquets, um, plenty of medical supplies. Well, one of my buddies is an EMT; he's been kind of running us through what to do. And um, like, I'm not like your man Reese or anything like that. I don't, I don't have maybe a particular skill set, but I can't just watch. I, I, I want to go because I don't want to watch this on on Instagram or on the news unfold mm-hmm. and just be like, Oh well isn't that terrible? And I'm not gonna be able to fight. I'm not I'm not a I'm not a soldier. I'm not I'm not, I'm not really anything really, but I just I'm I'm fighting for them and I want to help. And to be clear, Luke did not want to take up a gun. Not at all. Those Russian troops are invading, they're only following orders the same as the Ukrainian soldiers. It's it's it, it's it's people pulling the strings that are the problem, and I'm not going to take up a Kalashnikov and fire at a guy who you know in another life I could be friends with. I'm going over there because I'm seeing houses being destroyed and people being displaced, and I just want to help. I don't. I just don't. I'm sick of looking at the misery and not doing anything about it. And this conversation was heartbreaking for the depth of feeling on both sides. And do you want to ask Luke anything where you can? That well, first of all, he said there. You know, you said. Like, like you're not really anything, really. You're my son. You're your grandparents, grandson, and we love you. And we've done everything. You've got college. You know, you've got your driving test coming up. You've got a life here. You've got people who love you and want to see you grow up. Um, and you're risking that. You're visiting a war on us. You don't visit war. War is visited upon you. You don't go visit us. And when you say help, grand, go in the summer. You know, go when this is over and they need to rebuild the homes. Like, I'll, I'll support you. We'll give you money. We'll organise a fund. We'll do everything to get you over there. So you can go. Your dad has said he'll go with you um, and help you, teach you how to build things. And he, he'll go with you for a few weeks and set you up. But this is crazy. Like, going now is not the time. I understand lockdown for two years in your 20s, get some meaning in your life, do something useful. And the the draw for that is huge. I totally, totally understand that. But you don't visit a war. You're visiting a war on your family, on your grandparents, on your dad. Your dad's broken. I just don't want you to go. I think it's rash. I think you should wait. Blue. 
your dad's heart is broken. Your mother, your mother, you can hear her there. Her heart is broken. Yeah, I know. And it, it doesn't, like, it's, it doesn't make going any easier. And it, it, it's, like, it's, you know, it's, it, it's hard for me, myself as well. And it's, it, it's frightening to think that, you know, yeah, I could, I could be in harm's way over there and something, something bad could happen, but I'm, not could I've, I've be, not could be, will be. This is a war zone. You are in harm's way. Like, there's no maybe I will or I might get... You will. But for Luke, this was something he felt he just had to do. It's one of the most live-streamed wars in human history and I don't want to sit back and watch it. And I don't want to just change my profile picture to the Ukrainian flag or, or just, like, tweet out that I stand with them. I actually want to go boots on the ground and try to help somebody out. It doesn't matter, like, what I, what I could be doing. I don't mind if I'm, if I'm just carrying stretchers or filling up water buckets or I don't, I don't care, washing bandages. It doesn't matter what I end up doing for the entire time I'm there. Something, anything to help, anything to kind of alleviate that suffering. I just, I, I, I feel compelled to help. I can't, I can't sit it out. Have I'm you? not going to be dissuaded. This is something that I believe matters. And I would hope that if we were ever, God forbid, in the same situation, that there would be other guys who would be like, that, that this isn't right. Those people are suffering and they, they need help. Mm. I can do something. You're right, I am a fit, able-bodied young man. So why should I sit in my laurels and just tweet about things? Well, why, why not actually just get out and do something that matters? This is important. Yes, it's a, it's a war zone and it's frightening and I'm going to miss my family. But some things are more important than one man's life. And I think when, when you're seeing like, millions of refugees and, you know, constant bombing, like, missiles being, like, like just, just, just striking anywhere in the city, even embassies being hit, it's wrong. I'm only going over there because I think the Ukrainians deserve help. Okay, Reece, I don't think they've I, ever I, done anything Richard, wrong. It's not, about, it's not about why you're going. It's that you're going. And, you like, every life matters. Your life matters. And you, everything over there, there's, there's bombs, there's bullets. It's indiscriminate violence. It has no sense to it. And you are putting yourself there. That's the part, not why you're going. It, it's that you're going. Live line on Tuesday. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Have a listen to the weariness in the voice when this comes around. Shachtan Nguelga. Shachtan Nguelga. What should we do for Shachtan Nguelga? As if there's anything. Like, what could you possibly do for a language that's two or three thousand years old in a Shachtan? A mere Shacht law, seven days. Even if Shachtan Nguelga does now last for She Law Yeg, actually. Ooh, a Tushuk sounding Moncon McGann battle scarred on Sunday Miscellany. But pulling himself up by his Aaron socks, he dives right back into the old, old Irish of West Kerry. It's the sheer specificity of the words that I love most, like Milchard. Milchard is a circular sore spot from walking barefoot on the sole of your foot. A Milchard. He'd often have a little black spot at the centre of it. It's not quite a blister and not quite a bruise. It's a milchard. You'll see it particularly on people with balpoga. Any guess what balpoga are? Don't bother. You're, you'll never get it. Balpoga are flat feet. Will you look at his flat feet? And my own personal favourite. Cock 
coxaloidum. Now we're getting there. This is the good stuff, the 100% proof. Coxaloidum means a love potion, an aphrodisiac. Tan coxaloidum again. He has what it takes. The John Travolta stare. The John Wayne swagger. The George Clooney smirk. It works for women too. Hug she on coxaloidum though. She put the come hither on him. There were specific potions and herbal mixes that could be used as a coxaloidum. A well-known one was Driabna Boyle. It was said, Now, you won't understand the first bit, but what about It means into the man's drink, into his tea, no banya, no porter. And he'll be totally besotted by her. But what is this Driab Nabuila that you put into the drink? Well, according to a dictionary, it means the scum of the dung heap. But as I say, we're far from the realm of dictionaries here. We're well off pieced. Driab Nabuila, in the context of a coxaloidum or an aphrodisiac, is a metaphor for a woman's menses. Put a few drops of that into his drink and he'll be smitten. Amongst other things, mixologists of the Gaeltacht take note. How to follow that? Well, here's Bio Er Egan celebrating the Manaw. Nihilim Gurdrahrod E, Ganahian Mij Groshin Maratem, or Nasirshi at Oganinish, Pay Sirshi Yed, no Pay Ruddy Yed, Gertridu Gakrui, Erason, like Rudka Bonusa Lakalskaru. New contraception. Contraception. Contracep- I mean, hello, ban gonna pass the horse to us, Marielle, Gert Fosshi. Yeah. I mean, come on. A few sanitary products. Yeah, yeah. Like it's kind of fado. Me other tampons. Oh, oh yeah, no near Cadavachichin. Marielle, come up, play sure. Oh, yeah. And of course, our native language is woven through so many of the words we use. Taris Ja, Cathy Scuffle, historian who has a talk called Gielga Chimple Erin, Irish all round us. She was on the History Show. You've heard people use the phrase galore. So galore actually is an Irish word meaning plenty. We use it in, in, in phraseology and we use it in, in everyday language. I have another one as well. You, you hear people say a slew of things. But that comes from the Irish word slua, which means plenty. I particularly love it when I hear our American colleagues using the phrase smithereens. And then I start thinking about, wonder, that's definitely one of ours. And of course it is smithereeny, meaning little bits. So there were a lot of little words that we we were using in everyday language. Mentor, again, a mentor is from mutual. A teacher. You've just given us some smashing examples. I have given you some smashing examples. And there's another word for you, Miles. Uh, Ismahishin. Ismahishin is smashing. All put together for us. So, yes, they are smashing examples. Ismahishin. That is all very interesting. But then Miles gets all coy. You can almost hear him blush. Um, No, I, I probably shouldn't say this word. It's certainly not politically correct or appropriate in this day and age, but still, I'm sure, widely used in in Dublin. And that's the word mot when uh, relating uh, to somebody's girlfriend. Where does that come from? Oh, it's still plenty of uh, use of the word mot, uh, whether it's politically correct or not. And again, it's an Irish phrase. Mahon Colleen, a good girl. 
a good girl with your girlfriend. So Mahan Colleen. So when me and me Mott, as one of the lads might say, are going out together, he's going out with his good girl, his girlfriend. From the History Show. Now, a question. When you were a kid, a young woman, who did you obsess about? Ooh, here on Team Playback, Byrne, Finucane, Buchanan... All the greats. But can you guess the actor upon whom Tabitha Curvin currently crushes? I mean, it's the eyes, it's the cheekbones, like you say, it's the angles, it's the hair. He has excellent hair. Uh, there's also, like, I mean, his character, of course, yeah. is very important. Like, I think he's, uh, you know, as a person, you know, he's the, exa- you know, the very kind of example of <laughs> non-toxic max- masculinity. is thoughtful and kind. and But he often plays these characters, you know, that are quite mean mm. Uh, mm. and I think there's that kind of contrast between his real life personality and his acting personality creates a kind of I don't know erotic frisson or something Ooh, flipping through the Rolodex the Gosling the Clooney the Fassbender even uh, no Benedict Cumberbatch why did you decide it's him question of the week Oh, I feel like I didn't decide. I feel like it just happened to me against my will. Like, I, I was an, you know, a mother at home with two young kids. At no point in the previous 20 years since I'd stopped thinking, or 25 years probably, since I'd stopped thinking about Bono, uh, had I thought, oh, I really miss this kind of obsession or I really want this kind of passion. I just absolutely didn't feel it was missing from my life. And it just came like a bolt from the blue when I was just watching an episode of Sherlock one night with my husband and I just felt like this a yearning to, to spend more time in the company of this man. <laughs> As the ink dries on the restraining order. But there is a slightly more serious point here because she's written about this in the confusingly titled book This Is Not A Book about Benedict Cumberbatch, in which she brings some gender politics to the teenage obsession turned middle-aged crush. Because girls' interests are just generally denigrated and devalued, girls learn that they're something that you should grow out of, you know, that they are immature or they're inauthentic. And so when you grow up, you, you naturally just grow out of them. And it seems like a normal part of progressing to adulthood and you invest your time instead on, like, you know, looking after your appearance or uh, <laughs> eventually caring for others in your family, directing your attention to being in service to others. Uh, and it seems, you know, immature or juvenile uh, to have things like, you know, posters up in your, in your room or, uh, you know, <laughs> certainly it would be immature to have... <laughs> heart-shaped photos stuck to your uh, chest. But it's, yes, for some reason, uh, men can have, you know, Manchester United tattoos or flags up at their desk. Their, um, their whole lives can continue. It can be a lifelong passion and it's never considered to be juvenile or immature. It's considered a wonderful thing. And I think they absolutely should, but I think women should have the same opportunity. Well, Tabitha, when you put it like that, we can only end with this woman. That is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. I'm not here next week. Talk to you the week after. Anyway.